Good evening, everyone. So in our normal Sunday worship service, it follows kind of a, a similar narrative or a similar flow all throughout the year. And, and we, we deal with each aspect of, of the redemption story, that we are sinners in need of a Savior, that Jesus came, that he bled and died for us, that he rose again, that he ascended, that he reigns today. You know, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. This is every Sunday. During Holy Week, that all stretches out. And so on Palm Sunday, we focus on the triumphal entry. Last night, we focus on Jesus ministering to his people and instituting the Lord's Supper. And today, we focus simply and solely on his crucifixion. And this is not a time that we're not play-acting. It's not pretend. We don't forget that Christ has risen and Christ will come again. We still live in light of that. But we take this day to focus on the fact that Jesus bled and died. And so this is, in some ways, kind of the the simplest um, and most somber service of the year. Will you please stand? Blessed be our God. Almighty God, we pray you graciously to to behold this your family, for whom our Lord Jesus Christ was willing to be betrayed and given into the hands of sinners and to suffer death upon the cross, who now lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. So this service is one way of doing Good Friday. This focuses on the seven last words or the seven last utterances of Jesus while on the cross. They're called from the various four Gospels and put into roughly chronological order in the time of his crucifixion. So I'll be reading aloud each one of these words, each one of these utterances, and then a brief meditation on most of them. The first word is taken from Luke 23, verses 32 to 34. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put, by, to, be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, There they crucified him, the criminals, one on his left and one on his right. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. As we consider why Jesus died, for what reason he died, it's easy and hopefully prudent for us to start thinking about the idea of our own sin. The unthinkable ways that human beings can hurt one another, abuse one another, break God's law, sometimes subtle and small and sometimes enormous. Sometimes we harm by accident. Sometimes it's very much on purpose. But in every case, it's because we don't see sin the same way that God does. We don't think of the evil and the harm we do in the same way God does because the real reality of how our world works that reality that we see a glimpse of in things like Daniel or Revelation, the real reality that the creator of the universe can see would show us that sin is a monstrous evil, even the smallest sin. It's a corruption and a perversion of the way that life should be lived, and it's an affront to God's justice and his holiness. One of the results of sin is that it actually dulls our own senses to its evilness. 
Theologians call this the noetic effect of sin. And basically what it means is how our sinful fallen nature affects our very thinking, our ability to process right and wrong. Romans 1.18 says that the human condition is like this. For though they knew God, that is, though every, I'm sorry, that everyone in their hearts knows that there is a God. So for though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. This is plainly obvious in the world around us. If you do the same bad act over and over and over again, it is so quick to be normalized in our minds. We rationalize it. It just becomes part of the background noise, the pattern that we live our everyday life in. Our senses get dulled to the repeated sins we do over and over again. Our foolish hearts become darkened. And so praise God that he actually stepped into our world, came into this mess of sin, became human in order so so that he could pay the price for other humans, take the incalculable punishment for sin that humans deserve. Praise God that he actually looked on sinful people who had not yet done anything to deserve God's favor, looked at them and said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they are doing. The second word from Luke 23, verses 35 to 43. And the people stood by, watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who was hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other one rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly For we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is the story of the thief on the cross, also known as the good thief or the penitent thief. It's often Example one used by Protestants in explaining why baptism might not be absolutely 100% necessary for salvation. It's an example of how God can do whatever he wants to whomever he wants, whenever he wants. But there's another aspect of this story, and it's an example of God's grace. This common thief condemned to die as an irredeemable criminal, he was the first one through the door of heaven behind Jesus that day. People will occasionally say, Christianity just seems so unfair. You mean to tell me that somebody on earth during their life can be as evil as they possibly can be and then have some kind of deathbed conversion and God just ignores everything they've done up to that point and they get to go to heaven? Well, yes. At any point... When someone finds true and penitent faith and places their trust in Jesus, they are 
united with the Son, reconciled to the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit. They are reborn. They are born again with a new heart, washed by the blood of the Lamb, even if that happens on their deathbed. Isn't that offensive to our sense of fairness? Jesus actually tells a story about this. He talks, he tells a parable about the kingdom of God, and he compares it to workers in a field, how some workers are hired at the very beginning of the day, and other workers are hired in the middle of the day. And there are some workers that are hired right before quitting time, at the very end of the day. And yet every single one of those workers, they all receive a day's wages. And that is just offensive to our sense of fairness right up until we remember that if fairness was the ideal, that none of us would have a chance. Until we remember that none of us deserves the kingdom of God, that's what would be fair. And the wage that we'll have earned for our labor is death for our sin. And so we see this man identified only by his worst attributes. He was a robber, he was a thief, a man condemned to die for stealing, and he is the first one through the gates of the kingdom of heaven, right on the heels of Jesus. But the thing is, if you go with that mentality of how unfair Christianity is, that if you, if you have a deathbed conversion, that God will just ignore everything else that you've did, it's important to remember that God never just ignores our sin. God didn't just forget about this good thief, this penitent thief's sin. He just took the punishment for that sin, And he moved it a couple feet to the left. All the sins of everyone who trusts in Jesus were placed on Jesus' head this Good Friday. The wrath of a perfectly just God for an incalculable number of sins. Things we have done, things we have left undone. Sins with ghastly consequences. All of it. All of the wrath of God for all of those sins focused on one man on a Friday afternoon. And the reason that that happened is so that any one of us can hear Jesus say to us what he said to the thief on the cross. He said, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The third word of Jesus on the cross comes from John 19, verses 25 through 27. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. This is an example of of how in all circumstances, at all times, God builds his church. From the Garden of Eden until Jesus comes again, God has been building his one church. Even in the midst of unimaginable spiritual suffering and unbearable physical pain as he hung on the cross, Jesus continues to build his church, not just numerically as he did with the thief on the cross, but structurally and interpersonally. He provides for his people and he cares for the vulnerable. Now by this time, Joseph, Mary's husband, may very well have been dead. He certainly isn't mentioned 
anywhere in the Gospels after Jesus was about 12. So Mary may very well have been one of the widows that Jesus was so frequently telling us we must provide special care for. And even on the cross, at the hour of his death, Jesus builds his church. We see this. He, he forges new relationships. He builds resurrection people into a new creation family. The nuclear family is not the building block of the kingdom of God. The church family is. And so here we see Jesus as the cornerstone of his church, as the great high priest of his church, strengthening it, guiding it. We see Jesus as the good shepherd of his church, leading his people to become the family that he continues to gather himself, that he continues to gather to himself to this day. And so in the church, we see people of all kinds of different backgrounds and walks of life all coming together to be a new creation family. It's why we're here. And I think it's important to note that Jesus does not say, Mother, stay with John. He's going to provide for you now. John, take care of Mary here. She is worthy of honor and she deserves comforting. No, Jesus continues to forge new realities and create a new family when he says, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. The fourth word is taken from Mark chapter 15, verses 33 to 36. And when the sixth hour had come, when there was darkness across the whole land until the ninth hour, and at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with some sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come take him down. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is taken directly from the first line of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. They say, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you uh, I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, 
and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dyed up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and they gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of dogs. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of your congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before them who fear him. And then the humble shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nation will worship before you. Kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All of the prosperous of the earth will eat, but they will bow down. And all who go down to the dust will kneel before him, even the ones who could not keep themselves alive. Their descendants shall serve him, and the next generation will be told about the Lord. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people yet to be born. They will declare what he has done. It's said in Old Testament and New Testament um, theology that when anyone references the first line of a psalm, at that time in the ancient Near East, the people of God, the the children of Israel, would have been so familiar with the songs because they would have sung them all the time. So anytime someone references the first line of a psalm, it should have put in mind of the hearer all of the words of that psalm. And if you go back and look through that, you can see so many points through Psalm 22 of where the crucifixion of Jesus was was the, the embodiment and the fulfillment of all of these things that the children of Israel had been singing about for at least 600 years. I would encourage you, maybe tonight when you get home, to read through it yourself. And you can see all of the many ways that these things are fulfilled in Jesus when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The fifth word, John chapter 19, verses 28 and 29. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was completed, said, in order to fulfill the scripture, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. Jesus said several times in the Gospels that all of the scriptures point to him. 
And so much of what he did in his earthly ministry was a fulfillment of Old Testament scripture. Psalm 69 says, Insults have broken my heart and I am in despair. I waited for sympathy, but there was none. I waited for counselors, but there was none. Instead, they gave me poison for my food, and for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. This is another instance where Jesus' life and ministry and death and resurrection were a direct fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. The same people who were jeering at Jesus and, and misunderstanding him when he cried out in Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, thinking that he was calling Elijah. These were probably the same jeering, mocking people who are in view here. We aren't really sure what the sour wine in verse 29 talks about, but in all likelihood, it was red wine vinegar. In other words, this is something that would absolutely not cure someone's thirst after they said out loud, I am thirsty. This would actually accentuate it. This was not a kind gesture of mercy. It was another instance of ridicule and torment. One other image stands out in this verse. It's not mentioned in the other, in the other gospel, but John is clear to say that they put the, spen- the sponge on the end of a hyssop branch. Seems like an odd thing to use to reach up to somebody on a cross. Why not use a, a long stick or a pole? Maybe because it's the closest thing they had lying around. Or maybe because this is another instance of God using this moment, this human being's choice, to remind readers, to remind listeners, to reach back into the Old Testament and show another way that Jesus is the fulfillment of all God's redemption and solidify the picture of who Jesus is. Because in Exodus 12, Moses was instructing the children of Israel on how to prepare to escape slavery in Egypt. Moses called all the elders of Israel together and he said to them, go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it, dip it in the blood that is in the basin. Touch the lintel over the door and touch the two doorposts with the blood. And none of you shall go out of the door of this house until morning because the Lord is going to pass through to strike down the Egyptians. But when he sees the blood covering the door, the Lord will pass over that door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. In Exodus, we see a bunch of hyssop used to sprinkle the blood of the lamb so that the Lord's judgment might pass over them. And here in John, a bunch of hyssop is offered to the lamb as he bled for us so that the Lord's judgment might pass over us. A hyssop branch containing vinegar that someone gave to Jesus who was hanging in the noonday heat in response to his plea, I am thirsty. The sixth word from Luke 23 Verses 44 to 47. And now it was about the sixth hour. And there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour when the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And then Jesus called out in a loud voice, saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. 
And having said this, he breathed his last. And when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly, this man was innocent. The seventh word is taken from John chapter 19, verses, verse 30. This is the one instance in this service of seven words that doesn't go chronologically. You may have heard in Luke 23 that he breathed his last. This is the moment that Jesus died. He gave up his spirit to God. The curtain of the temple was torn in two, and everyone could rush through and have access to God through the death of Christ. John 19.30 goes back a little bit. When he had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. The determination of the human heart, apart from the, apart from the mercies of God, the determination of the human heart to willingly turn away from God is astounding. Everyone does it. And that's exactly what sin is. It is a, a turning away from God from his character, from his nature, from his commands. It's putting what we want ahead of what God wants for us. And the cross was God's plan for how to deal with that crazy reality of how frequently we turn away. The cross dealt with that once for all, fully and finally. And that was the plan all along. All throughout the Old Testament, it is hinted at, and we get glimpses of it. Patterns repeating over and over, pointing to something greater, something better, something final. The true and better Adam. The true and better Abraham. The true and better son of Abraham. The true and best David. Everything in redemptive history leading up to this point of Christ on the cross. And so it's no wonder that with all of that rushing to converge on him at once, when he gives up his spirit, when he completes his work, It's no wonder that he says, it is finished. In Greek, that phrase is one word, tetelestai. And it means it's over, it's done, it is completed and perfected. The work of Jesus the Redeemer is finished. In Genesis 22, Abraham, a godly man, is called on to sacrifice his only son, the one God had promised to give him, the one he had been waiting for. And although Abraham did not understand it, he obeyed. And so we see his young son confused. He says, Father, what are we doing? I I see the wood and I see the knife, but where's where's the lamb for the sacrifice? And Abraham said, my son, God himself will see to the sacrifice. And at the last minute, as Abraham is about to carry out this unspeakable thing, God stops him because he was never going to have Abraham kill his son. And at that moment, Abraham looks up and he sees the real sacrifice. He sees a ram caught in the thorns of a bush by its horn. Abraham sees the sacrifice that God demands and that God provides. A sheep with a crown of thorns around his head. And Abraham knew that God himself would see to the sacrifice. 
all of those Old Testament metaphors and symbols, and there are so many of them. All of them coalesce and harmonize and unify on the cross. It is finished. It is finished. The penalty for sin has been paid. The separation of God and his people is over. True and final reconciliation between us and the one who made us. It's easy in in images of the crucifixion to focus on the actual physical suffering of Jesus, and we should. The whipping, the scourging, the spear that gets shoved into his side, his hands and his feet nailed to a cross. It is a torturous way to die, and the Romans did that very much on purpose. Sometimes in the Roman Empire, the road going into a city would be lined with people hung on crosses as a warning about what happens when you go against the empire. And so as, as gruesome and, and almost unthinkable as that kind of torture is to our modern eyes and ears, we should not regard Jesus' physical torment as the greatest price that he paid. Many people throughout history have been and, and still are today horrifically tortured. What should weigh heaviest on us, though, when we think about this day is the weight of the sin that Jesus bore. All of those sins, God hates them. They are a violation of his law. When we sin, even if we don't realize that what we are doing is we are, once again, turning away from God, trying to be little gods ourselves because suddenly we get to decide what is right and what is wrong. And so if God hates every single sin, imagine the full weight of that wrath bearing down on Jesus. Jesus knew what he had come to earth to do. And so since he knew exactly what he was here to do, he knew exactly when it was over. To tell us, die. it is finished. And out of that, we get redemption, we get restoration, we get forgiveness. Do you believe this? Do you really truly believe this? Do you believe that this incredible gift that you have made, been made right with God because of what Jesus did on the cross, do you believe this? Hebrews 10 says that the great high priest Jesus made the final and ultimate sacrifice once for all. No more is needed. It is finished. And so it is finished for all of us. It is finished for the thief on the cross. It is finished for every one of us who makes tiny little gods out of something trivial and unimportant and bases their whole lives on that small thing. It's finished for those who do evil in the name of God. It is finished for those who don't know how to rest and put their full trust in God. It is finished for liars and thieves and gossips and busybodies and torturers, all sins great and small. It is finished for everyone who trusts in Jesus and follows him. Think about a couple months ago when we started the Gospel of Mark. Jesus started his earthly ministry, and what did he say? The first recorded words of his were, The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. Repent means to turn away. So we turn away from sin and we turn back to God. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. And what else did Jesus say in that same first day? He said, Follow me. Follow me. Come with me. Imitate me. Do as I do. And at the end of that road, what does he say? That road that led all the way to the cross. It is finished. 
It is finished. Our sin is paid for. We are forgiven. Thanks be to God. Amen.